If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read some passages before we get to that, but that's probably a good place to land and it gets your Bibles open. Amen. And so we're here talking now about the ascension. So look at your notes. I have a couple questions to start out with. And the first, you, you, should, you should know the answers to these questions from the previous lessons. And here's the first one. What was Jesus doing at the ascension? What was he doing in that moment? And we've seen in our previous lessons, he was beginning his ministry in heaven while continuing his ministry on earth. And that's really what the previous lessons were focused on. John Calvin says in his Catechism to the Church of Geneva, For after he had performed all things which the Father had given him to do, and which were for our salvation, there was no need of his continuing longer on earth. And so he ascends up. Calvin goes on and the Catechism goes on to say, For as inasmuch as Christ entered heaven in our name, just as he had come down to earth on our account. He has also opened up access for us so that the door previously shut because of sin is now open. This is the hope and the promise of the ascension. But here's the second question. Where did Jesus go in the ascension? Where did Jesus go? And this is what we want to talk about. We saw last week, the answer is back home to heaven back home to heaven in his human body. But here's what we want to talk about this morning. To be exalted in the glory of God, in the presence of God. He went up to be exalted in the glory of God, in the presence of God. And just quickly, as you see there in your notes, I want you to realize that this is a big thing in the Bible. Jesus prayed for this the night before he was crucified. Of all the things he could have prayed before going to the cross, this was high priority. Twice he says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. John 17, 24, he says again, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. He prayed that, and it happened in the ascension. His first disciples were the eyewitnesses of this happening. We see this in Acts 1, 11. Where or one nine after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking. A cloud, the glory cloud of God, received him up out of their sight. This Jesus has been taken up from you into heaven and will come just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Peter preached this in Acts 3. He preached to the Jewish people. This is after he's ascended. This is after they have asked, when is the, the, when is the kingdom going to be restored? And in Acts 3, here's what Jesus says, or Jesus, here's what Peter preaches. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. 
taking us right back to the servant songs of Isaiah. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He's saying, hey, the servant you've rejected is now exalted in glory. The early church said it to one another and they sang it to one another. In 1 Timothy 3.16, here's what Paul says. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh... Incarnation was vindicated by the Spirit, resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and this early church confession ends taken up in glory. Even Daniel the prophet saw this in a vision way before Jesus was ever born. In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Here's one of the key visions of the prophet Daniel, and here's what he sees. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom." that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. There's the Great Commission. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel saw thousands of years before it happened, the ascension happening as Jesus rises and comes before the Ancient of Days and to be given glory, dominion, and power. So what? So what does that mean for you and I? Why does it matter? That's what I want you to see this morning. I, well, first of all, let me just say this. What I just gave you is a good enough reason to worship Him. All right? It doesn't have to relate directly to your life or mine to make it meaningful. Are you with me? Just the fact that we're going to see him in glory is a glorious thing. But there are practical ramifications that I want you to see this. So this morning, here we get five reasons why the man in glory matters. And I enjoyed preparing this. It was hard. Because it's not one passage, so that's hard to outline, that's hard to prepare as a teacher. But I learned, and it's a focus that maybe you have never been taught or you haven't thought about. So let's look at these five reasons why the man in glory matters. Number one, Jesus' glory, and by the way, May 18th, this Thursday, was Ascension Day, okay, in the church calendar. So good that we're looking at this. Jesus' glorification is a preview of our own. It's a preview of coming attractions. What he is enjoying, we too will experience. Because Jesus is now in the presence of God in a human body means that we too, as believers will one day live in God's glorious presence in our own glorified bodies. Can I get an amen on that? And why do we know this? Because, number one, Jesus took our humanity with him into God's glorious presence. Think about that. Jesus took 
our humanity with him into God's glorious presence. I love this quote by Rabbi Duncan who says, The dust of the earth is on the throne of heaven. Now, you just dwell on that one. The dust of the earth is on the throne of heaven. You might think, I'm too low. Who am I that God would take notice of me, much less let me enter into his presence? Well, the dust of earth is on the throne of heaven. Writing on the Lord's Supper, Calvin said this, The body of our Lord in heaven is the same as that which he had on earth. Scripture everywhere teaches us that teaches us that as the Lord on earth took humanity, so he has exalted it to heaven, withdrawing it from mortal condition. In other words, it's the same body, but it's a body that can no longer die, but not changing its nature. It's still human, yet it's glorified. Elsewhere, Calvin also writes, The whole of Scripture proclaims that Christ now lives His glorious life in our flesh, just as surely as it was our flesh in which He was crucified. We get excited. He died in our place as a man. Get excited. He's in glory in our place as a man. And as I have said, more important. Well, here the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way, Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be, God and man in two distinct natures, and one person forever. But as I've already said, greater than Calvin, who was a man, greater than a catechism, which is written by men, is the own creed of the church in 1 Timothy 3.16, where they would say and sing, taken up in glory, taken up in glory. Now this kind of, and this had never happened before. Never before had a human body been in the presence of God in all of his white hot glory. But that makes us think. If you know your Bibles, you should be asking, is Jesus the first to have a glorified body in heaven? And it made me think through two two, uh, significant events. What about the translation of Enoch and Elijah? The only two men to have ever been raptured and translated up into heaven in, in their bodies. But here's the key difference. What's the difference between their body being translated into heaven and Jesus's body yeah they didn't die but what was different about their body what kind of bodies did they have enoch elijah human sinful bodies sinful bodies okay and they had sinful bodies. So in their, in their fallen human nature, they entered into heaven. Now, what happened there, I don't know. But I know this, it wasn't like Jesus going up in a sinless, resurrected body. And so what happened to Enoch's body and Elijah's body as they're translated into heaven? Well, that's one of those questions that God has chosen not to answer. Why? To keep our focus on Jesus. What we know is Jesus' body in in being translated was human, but it was unique in that it was sinless. But what about the transfiguration? 
in the transfiguration, uh, Peter and James and John, they see the Lord Jesus' human body. The veil is pulled back and they see the glory of Jesus. But there are two figures with them in that vision, Elijah again and this time Moses. So does that mean they're running around in heaven with glorified bodies? I would say to you, we don't know because this is a vision. It's a vision. And so we don't know exactly. We shouldn't make assumptions from that vision of the state of their glory, of their bodies in heaven. Okay. Besides, we don't want to make the mistake that Peter made when he saw this vision because he said, Lord, let's build three tents so that we can just hang out with these three, you and the, and the two seemingly glorified prophets. And when he says that, the other two disappear and the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, Let's, we shouldn't equate whatever was going on with Elijah and Moses is not the same as the glory of Jesus in his glorified body. This is unique. This had never happened before. And yet it is a preview of what we will enjoy. So that begs the question, what kind of body? What kind of body does Jesus have? Well, here's the second point. Jesus' human body is now glorif- is a glorified body present with and partaking of God's glory. Jesus' body, human body, is a glorified body. And it's present with and partaking of God's very glory. And so when you ask the question, what kind of body does Jesus have right now in heaven? Human, yes, it's the same but different. It's the same, but different. And you see there in your notes, Jesus has the same body, but different. It's the body that was incarnated. It was the body that was humiliated here on earth. Here's the son of God down here as a human suffering, weeping, being rejected, hungry, all the things that we experience. It was the same body that was crucified and then resurrected then ascended and now exalted in heaven. The same, but different. And here's why I want you at 1 Corinthians 15. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, this very question is asked about our own resurrected bodies. Very relevant to our beloved Francis, who is in heaven. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And Paul being the gentle man that he was, You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, just as he wished And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. That is so important. Each of us is a seed that goes into the ground when we die. And each seed gets its own body. We're not going to be the Borg. We're not going to be a collective. Each of us will be resurrected in our individuality with your personality. All flesh is not the same flesh, though. 
But there is one flesh for men and another flesh for beasts, another of birds and another of fish. There's distinctions. There is also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, the greatest, and another glory of the moon, which is lesser, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it's raised an imperishable body. That's the body that Jesus has. It is sown in dishonor. He was crucified and humiliated. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. He was bloodied and broken. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We don't ascend to a greater status when we die to where we don't need a body anymore. The body is not a burden. It's a burden due to the bondage of sin. But the body is a blessing now and in the life to come. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, but the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The, soul also, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. What kind of body? Same, but different. No longer earthly, but heavenly. No longer natural, but spiritual. No longer weak, but powerful. No longer threatened, uh, no longer able to die, now immortal. Derek Prime, who has a nice little book on the ascension. If you want to read more on this, get that little book. Derek Prime says this. During his earthly ministry, Jesus' body was in a state of humiliation. In that it was subject to limitations our human bodies know, including death. This was followed by the state of resurrection during the 40 days. His body was the same but different. Was the same in that he could eat with his disciples, yet different in that, for example, he could suddenly stand among them when the doors was locked. At his ascension, his body passed into a glorified state. And here, Derek wisely says, we are not in a position to understand the wonders of his glorified state now. In fact, even the Apostle John admits that. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. In other words, we're children of God, but it's not revealed that we are children of God. And we really don't know yet what it's going to look like, but... He says this, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. He's glorified. 
we're going to see him in glory, which means we're going to be glorified. Amen? That's just good stuff. What's that going to be like? We don't know. But we know he's glorified. And when he appears, we will be like him because we can see him. Because if you're not glorified like him, you're not going to be anywhere near him. Because his holiness burns up sinfulness and cannot have it in its presence. Our Lord's ascension into heaven in his human nature is a fundamental of the Christian faith. And it is a foretaste, a preview of our future glorified state. Reason number one, the man in glory matters. Number two, Jesus' glorification is a reward for his obedience. His glorification is a reward. You say, how do we know that? Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and take a look. We kind of miss these things sometimes when we're reading. If you don't look for transition markers, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 especially. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. This is... After he's incarnate, he's incarnate, he, he grows up as a young boy, aware of his humanness, and being found, verse 8, in the appearance as a man, what does he do? He humbles himself by becoming obedient. How obedient? To the point of death. What kind of death? Even death on the cross, the most shameful the most humiliating, the most painful and torturous death and cursed death known to man. But look at verse 9. For this reason also. For this reason of his willingness to be humiliated, his willingness to be obedient to the point of even a cross death. For this reason also God did what? Highly exalted him. It's a reward. His glorification is a reward for his obedience. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and under the earth. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is glorified so that we will glorify the Father through Him. So here's what I want you to see. First point under this. The suffering servant is now exalted in glory as the sovereign Savior. The suffering servant is now exalted in glory as the sovereign Savior. This is why, listen to me, this is why Peter preached to the Jews... Not to the Gentiles. He was preaching to the Jewish people as a nation in Acts 3. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant. Israel, you were the chosen servant and you failed again and again and again. I just finished 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. God help us. They're just like us. The chosen servant failed. Israel, you failed. But now my Messiah, the servant of the Lord, 
He failed. He succeeded where you failed. And he is getting the glory that was yours. But you forfeited. And now you have rejected your king of glory. And so what does Peter say? God's done with you. Forget you. No, he preaches to him and says, you need to repent. There's yet hope for the nation if you will repent. And there was hope right now if you individually will repent. But the point was this. The, suffer, the servant fulfilled the suffering as stated in Isaiah 49. I won't read that. We read it in the, in the previous weeks. But boy, the connection, the connection between that sermon in Acts 3, I could give you three, four, five different direct connections, themes from Isaiah and the suffering servants. But this next point's an important one, and it's this. The servant of God receives the glory the Son of God never lost. All right, this is a new life class. Bridging the gap between... Radical learning, or uh, biblical learning with radical living. We're doing a little theology today. The servant of God receives the glory the Son of God never lost. That's probably one, that, that, you, get that. Circle that in your notes and say, I'm going to think on this until God gives me understanding. Let me see if I can help you. Jesus' final prayer, as I've said, before he went to the cross was for this to happen. But remember what he said. And you can turn there. Turn to John chapter 17. Turn to John 17. And look at these prayers that he prays about his glory. And it's very important to notice a couple things. Look at John 17, 5. Now, the Father glorif- now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, what? What's it say? Before. The world was. So I'm not getting glory I never had. I'm getting the glory that I've always had since before creation. Look at John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here's what you've got to keep in mind. Whenever you're reading about Jesus in the scriptures, you've got to keep in mind that he's one person with two natures. And so sometimes he's speaking as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and other times he's speaking as the Son of Man or the Son of Adam, who is fully human. So when he says, I don't know when I'm coming back, is he speaking as the Son of God or the Son of Man? The son of man, the son of Adam and his humanness. All right. And so what's happening here, we need to see that as the son of God, Jesus always possessed the glory of God because he was God. In the incarnation, the son of God did not cease to be God. He did not set aside his glory. He did not set aside his divine attributes. Instead, he covered them by his humanity. He didn't become less God. He added humanity to his deity. That's very important. And there's no other religion in the world that has anything like that. And no man 
or woman would come up with that. It has to be revealed. And you will never understand it unless the grace of God opens your heart to understand this. Philippians 2 reminds us that he doesn't set aside his divine attributes. He doesn't set aside. Instead, he's clothed. It's like he puts on a coat and he covers his deity with his humanity. Jesus is one person with two natures. So the Son of God never lost the glory of being God, but it was covered with his humanity. And in the transfiguration on that mount for that moment, the humanity was pulled back and the glory that was always there, always is there, and always will be there was revealed. But as the son of man, the son of Adam, his human flesh had never been glorified. His human flesh that was formed in the womb of Mary through a virgin conception, that human flesh had never entered in to the glory of God's presence. So it was new, and yet it wasn't new. The Son of God says, I'm just back, back home where I've been for all eternity. But the Son of Adam is like, Woo! I'm rewarded with glory. There is human flesh in the presence of God, and He is our Savior. I love this quote. His unique glory is that of an obedient, suffering servant of the Lord who perfectly fulfilled his Father's will in the divine plan of salvation. Listen, all that follows in Jesus' heavenly ministry and in this series, all that follows is from this fact that there is a sinless Son of God Sinless son of man in the presence of God's glory. There is humanity with deity in the God-man. Number three, Jesus' glorification is a comfort to the suffering. It's a comfort to the suffering. And we're going to talk more about this as we get into his ministry as a high priest and mediator. But for now, let's just see that Jesus' earthly obedience was perfected through his suffering. Jesus' earthly obedience was perfected through his suffering. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 5. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 5. Dangerous to ever reference Hebrews in any sermon, for neither the speaker or the reader is sure what is happening. Okay, so let's, let's look at Hebrews 5, though. We're going to get the big picture. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. Look at Hebrews 5, 7 through. In the days of his flesh, incarnation, before the resurrection, before his ex- in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, I think implying the son of God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered as the son of Adam. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal 
salvation. Now, in those two verses, at least 7 through 8, as Gwen would say, there's a lot going on there. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus always had the attitude of obedience, but that attitude needed to be tested and put in action. And that comes through our suffering. Listen, you are never more who you are than how you respond to suffering. What's, you know, it's like the toothpaste. When you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what's inside comes out. And when you're squeezed in suffering, what comes out? And when Jesus was squeezed, what came out was sinless righteousness and perfection and obedience. That's the idea. And so through that, through that testing, through that tempting, through that suffering... He learned obedience and his humanity, and he perfected it. Something no one else has ever done. Second point, Jesus' heavenly glorification then makes possible his merciful intercession. Hebrews 2, turn back to Hebrews 2. We're going to study this more, but I just want, I just want you to see that when we say... His glorification is a reward for his obedience. It's also a comfort to you in your suffering, in your temptation, in your struggles. Look at Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives for he is surely now here's what i want you to see verse 16 he does not give help to angels but he gives help to the descendant of abraham therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful High priest in things pertaining to God. Listen, he had to be us so that he could be our mediator in the things to God. He went through it down here perfectly so he could be glorified up there and understand your cries for help when you're in need. This isn't some faraway God that looks down and has never been where you've been. He's been where you've been, and he's done it sinlessly. <laughs> right? He's been there, and he's done that. And he's there, up there, to help us down here. For since he himself was tempted in that which he, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Anybody tempted this past week? Anybody tempted this morning before you came? Anybody tempted right now? All of that is a reality. Turn to chapter 14. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4. And then we've got to get out of Hebrews or we'll never leave. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. <coughs> Hebrews 4, excuse me, 14 through 16. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest... Now, the, now see this. This stuff's all over the Bible. I hope now you're going to see ascension. Since we have a great high priest who is what? Passed through the heavens. That's ascension. Jesus, Jesus, there's his humanity, the Son of God, there's his deity. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and there's the crucial words, yet without what? Sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, Jesus' ongoing ministry in heaven is keeping us, helping us, and perfecting us until our sanctification is complete, as it will be when we arrive where he is. Again, let me say, Derek Prime says this, the ascension is not... Only the exaltation of our Lord Jesus as a man, but the elevation of our humanity in him. He was where we are, and he is where we will be. That's the point. He was where we are, and he is where we will be. He gets it. He gets you. He gets you in your brokenness. He gets you in your temptation. And you say, yeah, but he never gave in. How can he relate? Oh, he can relate more because you're tempted this far and gave in. He went the whole way and never gave in. He understands better than even you and I do. That brings us to point number four, and it's this. Jesus' glorification is a promise that the best is yet to come. Jesus' glorification is a promise that the best is yet to come. Philippians 3 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate, into conformity with the body of His glory. This stuff's all over the New Testament. But we're not thinking ascension. We're not thinking glorification. Romans 8.28, the great five links in the chain of salvation, where he says, Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also, what? Glorified. The best is yet to come. I hate to tell Joel, but your best life is not now. Your best life is not now. This crushes the false doctrine of the prosperity gospel. Cross before crown, groaning before glory, suffering before seeing Him. Do not think it strange that you and I suffer. I don't like it. You don't like it. Jesus didn't revel in it. But this is how it is. This is how it is. 
We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Paul tells us this, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary and light is the affliction, Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. For now, our life is going to be like that. As Francis went to bed on earth, woke up in the middle of the night in heaven, she goes, wow, that was fast. Life just went boom. And now she's faced with, what am I going to do for eternity? I'm going to reap the reward of persevering through my suffering, of not quitting, of not giving up, of not having a pity party. And it's an eternal weight of glory because the glorified man in heaven guarantees it. Wow. Your best life is the one to come. Your best life is the one to come, being glorified in the presence of God with His people in His place. I had the privilege of helping some, one of our members this week in our church to understand that our hope is greater than becoming angels. We're talking about Francis's death and some uh, a loved one's death and and this man said, well, heaven's got a, a, another angel. And I, as a pastor, this is risky business. But I said, brother, let me help you with something. We have a better hope than that. We have a greater hope than that. We're not going to be mere angels. We're going to be us, glorified humans. And did you know we're going to judge angels? Even though we're made a little lower than angels... In their power now, one day we will be glorified and we will be judging angels. Your loved one is going to be a glorified human that you recognize and you knew on earth. But because he accepted the gospel, he will be glorified in heaven. Oh, listen, gospel people, let us never have this talk of angel becoming angels. God, first of all, doesn't need more angels. If he did, he'd created them. What he wants is redeemed people. You don't become... Listen, it's, it, the best is to be a glorified human. Don't settle for your best life now. Persevere by looking up for living out. And one day we will be like him and see him. And that brings me to the last point. Jesus' glorification is a reminder he's coming again in glory. The angels in Acts 1.11 said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus, the human God-man, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come again just the same way you have watched him. Now, last Tuesday, it's hard to believe. Jerry, that's just, you know, less than a week. Less than a week. Got to spend my last time for now with Francis. And we laughed, we cried, and we recited Psalm 23 together. Well, she did, and I helped her. 
It was the first time I ever had to help her. Any other time when I would go and visit her in the hospital, what do you want me to read? And she'd always say Psalm 23, and I'd go to open it up, and she'd say, don't you have that memorized? <laughs> you know, living with Norman rubs off on you a little bit, you know. And, uh, but this time was the first time sitting there on her bed that I had to help her. I had to help her. But I did learn something. She said, yeah, I recite this every morning when I get up. Every morning. As Jerry and Vicki and Francis and I were talking, we began to talk about the hope of heaven and, and talking about, oh, you're not going to have, you know, you're, you're going to die here soon. You're not going to have any more wrinkles. But we had to have another pastoral timeout because she doesn't have a body right now. She doesn't have a body right now. She's in a glorified set to be absent from the body. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, longing for a glorified, resurrected body. And because she can look at the glorified human body of Jesus, her and Norman and others who are there know that one day we're going to return with him. And in Thessalonians it says, and this is what I shared with the other member this week, God is so sensitive to the fact that his believers have had to experience death and yet are in a bodiless state that when he comes again, the first to be resurrected are the dead so that they can get back in their bodies. Us, if we're here when the rapture happens, we're in our bodies. That's okay, but God has a priority for the dead. Why? Because it's a reminder that we're going to have glorified bodies. Why? Because He has one. And there's a whole theology of the body we could look at. Listen, don't shame your body. Don't shame the bodies of other image bearers. Your body is a glorious gift. And one day as a believer, it will be glorified in His presence. Well, here we are. Do we got time? We're going we're gonna to listen. A hymn of glory let us sing. We're just going to, I'm going to play this tape. And this is just three choruses. The Venerable Bead. I mean, church history dudes are weird. The Venerable Bead in 600 A.D. wrote this song. It's been paraphrased, translated, updated. A hymn of glory let us sing. I included all the verses. Here's a portion of it. We'll end with this kind of worship. Amen. A hymn of glory let us sing. New songs throughout the world shall ring.
Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you set aside not your deity, but you set aside the praise and the worship of heaven as God to be clothed in human flesh and to suffer as one of us. But Lord, you are now ascended. May we come to you for comfort, May we come to you in hope and in facing death, even the death of a loved one. May we understand that the best life is yet to come, glorified in bodies like your own. Lord, what a great hope. We pray that we will live it. Look up this week and live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.